Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. And part of our team here, or part of what we do as a team, is we try to stay connected with you in all the many ways and places that you live and work and play. And that's one of the reasons that we use social media to try and share information with you, create content, and then also like all the profound thoughts and cute cat pictures that many of you put up every week. It's one of the ways we stay connected. And this is one of the reasons why, and this is just a quick plug, actually, that if you aren't already connected to us through our Inglewood Inglewood Commons Facebook group, we should probably fix that today. All you need to do is just search Inglewood Commons and our group will sort of pop up there for you on Facebook and you can let us know that you'd like to be part of that group. It's super easy. And there you're going to get some parish specific info, which there's going to be more and more of that through the spring here as things unfold for us as a community. And then you're also going to get a chance to see, sometimes people post things that they're going to be doing in town. Hey, we're all gathering in one place. And this is another way that we can sort of connect together as a community. So I want to invite you to take advantage of that today if you haven't already. Because today we're actually going to jump straight back into a series that we started last week. And actually, we mentioned this last week, that this is just actually year four, in which we are coming back to this book called Romans. And this time around, we're actually going through four more chapters together, which is going to be great. But listen, we take it pretty seriously that you choose to spend your time with us. There are lots of places in this city where you could choose to worship, and there are lots of opportunities in this city for you to find meaningful teaching. And that's why every year we map our journey as a community together. We map it out through our journal, which you can flip through, but then we also try to think of some ways as we put all of that together to expose you to a variety of intellectual and spiritual perspectives. And this is why we choose to spend time in the fall with Old Testament or Hebrew Bible characters. We explore the meaning and the depth of our everyday challenges like we do in series like we did in Friendship at the beginning of 2019 here. We also like to take several weeks each year to look at the teachings of Jesus, which we're going to do in Lent coming up this spring. And we also delve into the writings of Jesus' first followers, which is what we're doing with this series, When in Rome. And the truth is is that this approach is, it's a big deal for us because we really do believe that we are all better and we're all broader when we let the scriptures stretch us. And that's why we preach and we teach in this community as a team. That's why we constantly make references to writers and thinkers that are shaping us. That's why we have a bookshelf back there at the Connection Center where you can borrow and read a a wide range of authors that address issues like how to read the Bible or how to be more just or how to be more awake in the patterns of your living. And this is where we came to in our series start or launch, When in Rome, where we talked about how important it is to enter a conversation with Paul, who is the author of this text, and remember that these big ideas that he writes to us about, they emerged from his life and from his story. And those ideas then became part of our scriptures because they stretched Paul first. Which means that when we read and we feel discomfort with Paul's words as they come to us over time, that's fine. Some of that is the kind of gracious stretching that changed Paul's life when it came to him. And with that said, we chatted last week about how Paul saw himself as being sent to tell people about Jesus. 
And not just any people, the people who had long been left out of God's story as it was told in the Hebrew scriptures. And Paul felt this need to articulate a view of God's goodness that was now going to include all people, which was good news. In fact, it still is good news. And as we've looked over the last few years, in the first eight chapters of this letter, Paul argues that our human propensity to make a mess of everything, this persists around us and in us because we choose ways that are harmful and we work against the good news that comes to us in Jesus. And I think most of us would be like, yep, that sounds about right. Sounds like my life. It may have even sound like how it was driving to church this morning. I don't know. But the point is, is that Paul doesn't just argue that. Paul argues that God is relentlessly faithful and that Jesus's life and character show us this and that when human beings, Jew or Gentile, choose to live toward that faithfulness, they recover what's most original about themselves. And for Paul, this recovery had really tangible results in the real world. He saw it in things like people, regardless of their gender, their orientation, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, when they cared for each other, welcoming those who are different than themselves because that's what God had done for all of us in Jesus, which is this really compelling vision for communities today, I think. But interestingly, Paul kept writing. And today we're going to jump into another chapter of this story. Before we get to that, let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of the moments that we share now, where we are present to the sacrament of community and we are exposed to your grace in the hands and the hearts and the faces that we see here today. Thank you for the ways the community shapes us. The ways that it reminds us that there is so much room for all our diversity, for all the varied places that we come from, for our histories, for our shared future together. And so we ask for the anxiety that maybe we carry today. It's come with us. We ask, be our peace. And for the darkness that crowds around us in various parts of our lives, we ask, be our light And for all the ways that we feel we don't belong, we ask, would you be a place of rest and help us to see and sense it in each other here today? And let us share these things now as we lean into the text, listening for the quiet whisper of your goodness. We ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right, let's get to it. And fair warning today, There are parts of the work that we're going to do together that are going to feel a little bit like an undergrad lecture. And I've given lots of those kinds of talks, and I've joked here before that I enjoy teaching at Commons a lot more than some of those experiences because of how some of you seem to be listening a lot better than my old students used to, because most of them were just on Facebook or downloading Arrested Development or something like that. Or maybe it's possible you're just better at pretending to listen. That's okay. I can live with that if you can. Seriously. I'm going to do my best to chart a course for us, because this is a bit of a tough passage. Because right off the top of chapter 9, we're jumping back in, Paul says this. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish, or for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. 
And this is a bit of a jolt. It's kind of like jumping onto a treadmill that's already going full speed. And we're going to have to unpack some of what Paul's doing here over the next few minutes. But first, I kind of want to take a minute and talk about the emotional whiplash that Paul's putting us through here. Because do you guys remember where we left off last week? In this verse where Paul is using this soaring poetic language to celebrate this truth that he'd come to see, that nothing, anywhere, at any time could ever separate us from the love of God that we see in Jesus, which is this beautiful image. And then today we jump in immediately into Paul saying, friends, I am tortured inside. I'm being torn apart. I'm really sad and I wish I could separate, I could be separated from Christ for my people's sake. In fact, what he's saying is, I would trade my soul for theirs. And Paul's saying this as he talks about and to his Jewish siblings, those who weren't accepting the story of Jesus. And he's saying, I would do anything to help you see. Anything to ensure your salvation. Anything, in fact, including contradicting the emotion that I just used in the previous verse. And more on this in a second. But first, I want to see this as a great example of how Paul's story and his emotions, we can see how they're shaping his theology. I mean, I can totally relate to how when I get wrapped up in a conversation, I've been in some with some of you, I can start to say some crazy things. And I can definitely identify with how in heated or charged discussions, I can be poetic and clear in one moment and then sad and distraught in the other. And maybe some of you can imagine this too. Maybe that's how you live. But I love how that kind of emotion isn't sanitized out of the text. How we can see the ways, how our deep love for someone or something or some idea, it costs us and we end up getting frazzled. And these kinds of feelings are accounted for in the theology of the church. In fact, they inform Paul's theology, which should remind us to not be afraid to care about big ideas. And don't run away from your emotions when you feel like you're getting carried away sometimes. And maybe more importantly, this reminds us that we all need space to feel our way around big issues, especially when they matter to us. Space that we don't, or space where we don't have to be the most rational iteration of ourselves and where we can speak with intensity that matches our feeling, which is maybe what you can offer to Paul here as we continue and we let him be himself. But then maybe you can offer that same space to yourself this week or practice the art of giving that space to those you love and encounter. Now, that said, let's get back into Paul's argument here because It probably isn't clear right away why Paul's so upset and what he's upset about. So here's the basic gist. Paul has just spent all this time talking about how God's persistent work in the world had culminated in Jesus and how the Jewish tradition positioned the Jews to see this wonder. And now in the history of the early church, the Gentiles had now become part of the redemption that God had promised way back at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible in Genesis 12, where God said to this man, Abraham, who was the father of this people, he said, I will make you into a great nation, into Israel, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed by you. 
And then in places of like Acts 10, we started to see in the New Testament period, we begin to see how early in the church's timeline, Gentiles were starting to accept the story of Jesus and they began to join these little Jesus-centered communities. But we also see in the story that many of the Jews weren't acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah they had been longing for. And as scholar Cynthia Kittredge points out, this phenomenon of Gentiles accepting the gospel and Jews rejecting it, this was an urgent and immediate challenge for Paul because it appeared to undermine the faithfulness of God. It appears that some people might have been asking Paul, look, how is God faithful if the Hebrew people who know the story, if they don't recognize Jesus? And how is the story of the Hebrew scriptures true in its most basic sense if the Jews aren't on board with what God appears to be doing right now? And this would have put Paul in a really tough place because earlier he had been trying to make room for Gentiles in community by saying things like, a person is not a Jew who is only one on the outside. Nor is circumcision, which is one of the marks of being a Jew, is it merely outward and physical? No, a person is a Jew who's one on the inside. And circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code or the rules. And statements like that would have led people to ask Paul, well then I guess being an ethnic Jew and following all the rules doesn't really matter then. To which Paul clarified somewhat ironically, no, it matters the Jewish people know the story. They were given the very words of God, he says. Which is more or less what he circles back to here. In chapter 9, verse 2, right after what I read to you earlier, where we learn that what makes him so upset and willing to trade his soul is the fact that his fellow Jews have received so much. And he lists that, he says, they've received adoption and glory and covenants and law and temple, the promises of God, all these big ideas. But they hadn't received Jesus. And some people thought that this meant that the Jews had failed and that ultimately they were flunking out of God's redemptive program. And Paul responds, and this is what he says. He says, it's not as though God's word has failed. No, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And right here, we're going to take a bit of an exit ramp and talk about this big theological idea, this word called supersessionism. And I can tell many of you are excited, so I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) You can get a handle on this idea by thinking about our English word supersede, which basically refers to one thing taking the place of another, supplanting another. And here's what supersessionism is and why it matters. Basically, it's the idea that Israel, which Paul refers to in the verse that I just read to you, and the Jewish people, Israel and the Jewish people, that they missed the memo in Jesus and they walked away. And how the church which now recognize Jesus as the Messiah, these people take the place of the Jewish people in God's story. Now, there are many ways that this idea has developed and played out in human history. And one historical example comes in the writings of Martin Luther, who many of you might know or recognize his name at least. He translated the Bible. He formed the German language as we know it. He helped start the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And later in his life and career, Martin Luther became pretty supersessionist and by extension, pretty anti-Semitic. 
For example, he argued that the loss of the temple, when the temple was torn down by the Romans in 70 AD, that this was a sign that God had rejected the Jewish people. That, quote, no matter how much they boast of their father Abraham, they are no longer the people of God, end quote. And in other places, Martin Luther calls the Jews miserable and cursed. And these sentiments are extended into supersessionism elsewhere, like where he said, quote, all the Gentiles who are Christians are the true Israelites and the new Jews, born of Christ who was the noblest Jew, end quote. Which, if you just glance at what Paul's saying here in Romans 9, as I've read to you, it might look similar to what Luther was saying. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, where Paul seems to be saying that there's a true people of God beyond the category of those who have been known as the people of God. And we're going to look at this, but I want to make something really clear first. See, in Romans up to this point, Paul has been talking about Jews and Gentiles. Those are the terms he used. About the people, the ethnic people from the Hebrew scriptures on one hand and everybody else on the other. And the church in Rome had both of those groups in it. But right here, with a switch in his language, where instead of talking about Jews, Paul references Israel, this signals something. Where now, Paul, as a Jew, is talking to Jews. And scholars think that he's using this term and idea, Israel. He's doing it because the term would have been unfamiliar to urbanized Greeks and Romans in the community because Israel wasn't an actual place. It was no longer a nation at this time. And so by using that historical term from the Hebrew scriptures, Paul's signaling to the other Jews in the room. He's saying, hey guys, I'm talking about us. And what this means is that unless you or I are a Jew in this room today, we're suddenly sitting on the outside of a conversation. We're listening, but effectively the discussion about Israel and Judaism and who God's people are, that's an insider discussion that we get to observe. And the reason that's important to acknowledge is that there are so many examples like Martin Luther, where Christians take Paul's familial language for the insiders, and they come to the conclusion that the church this new Jesus movement that includes all people, that it has superseded Jewish history. And as a community, we want to acknowledge the ways that Paul's theology has been mishandled. And we want to be careful with it, especially as we work through the themes over the next couple of weeks. Yes, we want to be careful so that we're faithful to our tradition, but we also want to be careful because many of us live and work with Jewish friends and colleagues and family. Those who still hold and carry a rich story of divine action in the world. And many are our allies in the work of growing beautiful, peaceful communities. And it's important for us to honor that. Which is why we want to be frank and stay with me here. Paul wasn't saying that the Jews had been supplanted. He writes this, he says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that, our, that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. 
I get this is a little bit jumbly, which is why I'm taking such time to explain it. What Paul's trying to get through is this idea. He's saying, hey, family, Jewish family and siblings, let's be honest. If you look back at the story that God's been telling us since the beginning, being Jewish was never about race or ethnicity. And to drive this point home that he's trying to make, Paul pulls a couple of stories from the Hebrew Bible into the minds of his listeners. The story of Abraham and the story of Jacob and Esau. And this is something that Paul does a lot. In fact, the scriptures do it a lot. They call back to earlier stories and they reference and they reinforce those stories and then they retell them. And this is something that a couple of collaborators recently tried to create a visual for and somebody in our community actually sent me this. I want to show you this graphic. What you're looking at in this arc is a brilliant representation of how the Bible tells a story by constantly remembering and looking ahead all the time. Each of the little notches and lines there at the bottom is a chapter in the scriptures, with each crossing colorful line representing an internal reference, a place where one verse references another verse in the scripture. And in our Bibles, there are more than 63,000 of those, which might help you think of how deliberate and beautiful these texts are, despite how complex they seem. But two, maybe it helps you to think about the patterns of your own story. How beauty is found in the crossing links, in the ways that your past and your future form a beautiful arc under which you form a present. Grace working its way into all of it, I hope. And I only show you this image because it, maybe it can give you a sense of the reverence and the beauty that motivated Paul as he called back from where he is. Paul's way over there on the right side of the graph and he's calling back over here to the left to talk about Abraham. And some of you might know the story. Abraham had a wife named Sarah and they had problems conceiving children. And so when they did, Abraham had a child with Sarah's slave, a child that he named Ishmael. And Genesis 25 tells us that Abraham actually had another wife named Keturah and they had six sons together. And all Paul's saying is, hey, when you look back at Abraham, way back in the story, the father of our people, the one that God said he would bless everyone through. He had lots of kids, but our tradition only comes through one of them, the child of promise, the child God chose, the one named Isaac. It was never really about being part of the same family or ethnicity. And this idea of God choosing, well, Paul pulls another linking arch in this story when in the next verse he refers back to the story of Jacob and Esau, these twin brothers. And in their story, God tells their mother that the younger would rule the older before they'd been born, before they'd done anything, before they decided if they were going to be good or bad. And Paul's point is just this, that being chosen, that being part of God's own isn't about being moral or good. God just chooses which is what he's affirming again with this one last line where he says that or about one loving one brother and hating the other. And I know you can't see this. I'm going to have to just summarize it for you, but that last line, I hate I love Jacob but Esau or I love Jacob but I hated Esau. This is taken from the book of Malachi, right at the end of the Hebrew Bible. It's another one of these links that Paul's making. And I'm not going to get into it much here except to say this that the ancient author of Malachi was using a Hebrew turn of phrase there. 
He's comparing the descendants of Jacob, one of the brothers, they were named Israel, with their oppressive neighbors, a nation called the Edomites, who were Esau's descendants. And in that story, God's reminding the Israelites that he's chosen them and that the Edomites aren't going to get the last laugh. And Paul is lifting that story in that line merely to reemphasize his point. God chooses. It doesn't mean that God actually hates one person and loves another. Paul's borrowing this hyperbolic language to communicate a comparison in the text. And his point is simple. I've tried to frame it for us. He's trying to convince his own Jewish family members. Look, the story of our people wasn't ever about bloodlines. It wasn't about how well we kept the rules that God gave us. It was always about how God chose us to be God's people. And when God chose us, God didn't do this out of hate and spite for all the other peoples. God faithfully chose us so that we could show others God's goodness. A choice that became brightest and clearest in Jesus. Which shows us the truly good news. That they the Gentiles who were on the outside of the story, they were being welcomed home. And we, Paul was saying, the Jews who messed things up along the way, we couldn't stay on the straight path. Well, guess what? Grace is welcoming us too, helping us to see that God's choices were always for the good of all people. Now, I want to land some of this for us. Because Paul keeps writing. He just always seems to keep writing. And in verse 14, he anticipates the person in the crowd who's listening who might say, well, wait a minute. If God chooses some people over others, isn't that unfair? And Paul disagrees. He says, no, this is what God's been like and who God's been since the beginning. And he tries to convince them that God's choosing should comfort us because salvation does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And then he anticipates another person in the crowd at the back of the room who might say, well, if God chooses some and not others, how can God blame us? How can we be held accountable for the wrong we do? He's doing the choosing. That seems a little arbitrary. And Paul just sort of says, slow your roll, slow your roll. Try not to doubt God's character like that, he says. And then he gets to the heart of it. And he asks his friends in Rome to think about a couple things. First, he says, what if, traced over all those arcs I just showed you a second ago, those sweeping arcs of color in the biblical story, what if God has chosen to be extremely patient with some people? holding out for those who work against God's desire to bring everybody home. Those who are resisting what's best for them. He's being patient with those who are pressing toward their own destruction. And then second, he asked them to think of this, and I'm going to read you this one. What if God chose this way of being? What if he chose this to make the riches of God's glory known to the objects of divine mercy who were prepared in advance for glory? Even us who were also called, not, from, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And with these two questions, these what-ifs, Paul completes this picture that he's been trying to paint, where he's tried to make it clear that to his Jewish siblings that what made their story what it was wasn't their superior morals, and it wasn't their strict adherence to all the nitpicky rules 
It was God's choice. And he's tried then to make it clear to his Gentile friends that in Jesus, God's choice to bless all people, that's been realized and that it's included them. And then to support these questions, he goes back again. He throws another colorful arc back to the Hebrew Bible. And he pulls these two citations from a Hebrew poet and prophet named Hosea, where God says this, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And then he calls back at another verse and he says, and in the very place that it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called children of the living God. And for Paul, those two verses are the clincher because they are the seeds of God's choice to pursue all and gather all and include all. And they're hidden in the ancient story. They've been there all along, Paul says, casting arcs of grace into the future with hints of the very best news. And they were hidden where Paul's friends would read them as they wrestled with this totally revolutionary idea of what it meant to be religious and what it meant to be devout. Where what they thought it was, was all about boundaries and who's in and who's out and who God chooses and who God doesn't. And you better figure out which one God is at with you, they thought. And then that same arc was hidden where now we read it, where Paul's pointing to all of us toward a vision of faith where instead of the room getting tighter and the road getting more and more narrow, which is what religion and faith and life feel like when you're worried about following the rules and you're trying to be perfect. Instead of that, Paul argues that faith is the place we come to when we realize that God has been patient. And for just a moment, we trust that God might actually choose anyone and everyone, maybe even us, where instead of narrowness and tininess and tightness and a life defined by figuring out how not to miss out, we wake up to how faith is a step into the wide openness of God. This vast expanse that's making more and more room renewing all of the empty and broken spaces that we live in and filling them with bursts of color just like that graph. Now, Paul's going to make it clear that while God chooses well and God chooses beautifully and God chooses faithfully, we don't always. Not everybody takes God's best. And we're going to talk about that next week. But for today... Maybe you need to hear Paul's invitation from the wide scope of scripture and see your life caught up in it. For those places in your past where you've been told you don't belong here, I or we, we don't choose you. And it could be your parents, it could be friendships, it could be lovers, it could be children, could be communities. And these places are tender for us, I know, because they leave us feeling like we're on the outside. And maybe you realize, even as we're talking about these things, that you have been building and telling your story from out there for a while. Or maybe for those places in your present where the story of Jesus just seems too good to be true. 
And you have every right to be cynical because maybe you're working through some difficulty or some shame or some betrayal or some doubt. Those are all real things. And as we talk about Paul's theology, you realize that your idea of faith is super put together and it's sanitary where only rule followers or those with a certain history or those with a certain education or those with a certain background, those people get to be in the club. And you realize as we're talking about this that your category of who God loves is a lot smaller than Paul's. Or maybe for those places in your future. And the version of some better self that you constantly measure yourself against. Maybe you realize you've constructed this idea of faith as a place. And you'll get to it someday, you think. But if you're honest, sometimes you're afraid of how far away it seems and how the world and your life maybe seems to be moving away from the goodness that you want to see in it. In all these places, Paul's words find us today and they bring them all together and they ask you and I, what if God is kinder and more gracious, always and willfully choosing you and us, and them, more like Jesus than we could ever imagine. And this is our hope today. Let's pray. God, God of love and care and goodness pressing in toward us as we work through these complicated words. Help us to hear old words in new ways again. And some of us need this for places in our history where we were told that we don't belong, that someone didn't want us or choose us, and we have carried that with us. Some of us need to hear Paul for where we are today. Maybe we like to follow the rules, and that's what gives us comfort. Maybe we've broken some rules recently, and we've failed, and that reality is pressing up against us. And in both of these kinds of places, we find ourselves in a life that feels like it's closing in. And we, we need freedom to trust you today. Some of us need this truth and this light for the future versions of ourselves that we long to be. The future self maybe that we're afraid we won't ever realize. The future for this world and this city, our homes, our relationships. And we don't know how to get there. And so we ask, would you come and hold all these things now? And give us a sense of the way, even as we've looked at how Paul calls back to history and pulls the past and present and future together, give us a sense of the ways in which your grace comes to us and help us to trust your faithful choice. Your choice to make us new. Your choice to patiently wait for us to accept your kindness. These things we ask in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen.